Autism Through Cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project, based at Queen Mary University of London and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on this project, please visit our website, autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter, at Autism Cinema. In today's episode, we are joined by autistic scholar, linguist, musician and beekeeper, Dr Gemma Williams, for a discussion of the 1985 giallo horror shocker, Phenomena directed by Dario Argento and starring Jennifer Connolly. Just a small content warning here, this is a horror film, and as such it is a film about death and murder and stalking and all sorts of nasty things, so please do proceed with caution if needs be. Thank you for listening, we hope you enjoy the discussion. Welcome back everybody to the Autism Through Cinema podcast. My name is David Hartley and I'm joined once again by our regular hosts uh, Janet Harbord and John James Laidlow. But we're also joined today by a very special guest. Uh, Gemma Williams has joined us. Um, so I'm going to just hand straight over to Gemma and Gemma's just going to tell you a little bit about herself. Gemma? Hi yeah um, and yeah thank you for inviting me. I'm really pleased to be here today um, and to be able to talk about this film with you. Um, I am an ESRC postdoctoral fellow in social policy. It's actually my first day today at the University of Brighton. Um, I'm autistic and um, I finished my PhD earlier this year where I looked at uh, communication between autistic and non-autistic speakers. And that's probably my main interest. Um, and I've also kept these for about 15 years, which is quite relevant for this this film we're going to talk about. Thanks very much, Gemma. You keep bees. That's wonderful. Um, I can't wait to talk to you a bit more than that. 15 years of keeping bees. That's amazing. Uh, great. Thanks very much. And yes, it absolutely is relevant because today we are talking about a film which features quite a lot of insects and bees and so on. Uh, we're talking about the 1985 horror film Phenomena, uh, directed by Dario Argento. Uh, and uh, Phenomena was a, a film that's that's been brought to us by John James. So I am now going to hand, hand over to John James, who's going to give us a bit of an introduction to the film, uh, and then we'll take our discussions from there. John James. Thanks, David. Um, so yeah, Phen Phenomena is a 1985 film by Italian director Dario Argento. It was initially released in Italy before being picked up for the American market, where it was also known as Creepers. Um, it's what's known, it's an example of what's known as a giallo film, which is a subgenre of horror that's um, quite specific to Italy. Um, giallo is the Italian word for yellow, and it takes its name from the sort of uh, kind of cheaply produced pulp horror books. Uh, where the pages turned yellow after a while. Um, and as I said, Phenomena is an example of this, as is Dario Argento's uh, probably most well-known film, Suspiria. 
it stars um, Jennifer Connelly, who's very young at the time, in her first lead role. Um, her character's also called Jennifer, and she's the daughter of some sort of big Hollywood movie star, um, and she's been sent to a Swiss boarding school while her dad is off uh, shooting his film. Um, the plot involves a serial killer who's killing girls from the boarding school, but um, he's tracked down by uh, a Scottish entomologist and his chimpanzee assistant. And it also features uh, quite heavily Jennifer's sort of um, telepathic ability to communicate with insects, um, which is why the bees are relevant. Um, I really like Jello films, even though I understand they have some, you know, quite problematic aspects that they're highly stylized and, and very violent films. Um, and I've always, always been fascinated by this film because, um, because of the various ways in which Jennifer's experiences could be interpreted. Um, and it was really exciting to go back and watch this film for the first time since receiving my autism diagnosis a few years ago. Um, as Jennifer is very clearly depicted as someone who experiences the world as uh, very different from those around her. I think in many ways it reminded me of the discussion we had of the film Cat People from uh, the 1940s in terms of it being a B-movie um, and had some of those generic similarities of the outsider, um, the female outsider, experiencing the world differently, um, having a different reading, a correct reading, um, but very much within the terms of, of horror, the, you know, the, the feeling, the sensibility of the film being that this is a, you know, quite a disturbing experience on the part of that person. I wonder if you could say a bit more, John James, about about it being like a B movie, as it's you know what what the feel of that those kinds of films um, as, is like. As you were saying, very much in the kind of giallo tradition of of literature, which then became a film tradition in Italy. Uh, yeah, so in some ways, it, it, they feel kind of a bit strange watching them um, in present day, um, watching giallo films because they kind of feel a bit. I don't know how to describe it, a bit camp, really, <laughs> like, you know, that nothing really feels that real. It, 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 the blood is sort of bright red. All the colours are intensified. And, and quite a common feature of Jello films is that they're dubbed. So um, you, um, Phenomena, I believe, was originally released in English. Um, and then dubbed for the Italian market. So, um, so quite often that the the words don't quite match the uh, the movement of the of the lips of the actors. So there's something that feels strange. Um, and it does kind of feel, uh, yeah, a bit. I don't know, not cheap, but. It it does give the the vibe of a of a B movie. Um, there's a really good film about the dubbing process, actually called a horror film called Barbarian Sound Studio, 
about um, an artist who specializes in sound effects and dubbing and he slowly goes crazy as he's as he's working on a film um so yeah i just i just find it a really interesting um subgenre and phenomena well phenomena <laughs> as well um the idea of a subgenre is sort of like brings up one of the key themes i had to discuss in terms of this film is like categorization so the everyone who encounters Jennifer is um determined to sort of define her and 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 categorize her so i mean even in in quite small seemingly benign ways she's seen as i think her dad's called Paul 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 Corvino's daughter um she's seen as a sort of foreign american student who's come into this um european um, boarding school, even by her sort of classmates right at the beginning. And then later on, as she, she begins to exhibit sort of sleepwalking and and um, other sort of, not symptoms, but um, behaviours that people don't feel comfortable with, they're determined to sort of categorise her, that there's um, the, the headmistress is um, asked doctors to just sort of you know diagnose her and study her and and she brings up various possible causes they talk about mental illness and they talk about um the fact that she might be demonic or she talks about the um jennifer's affinity for flies has been related to beelzebub from the bible um and it sort of goes wider than that because even the doctor, the entomologist, he, you know, as someone who's probably being categorized himself a lot as, as, you know, a disabled person because of his accident and he's in a wheelchair, he's still quite focused on categorizing these insects. So there is like a huge theme of sort of everything in its, in its place and everything assigned. It, it made me think of, um, something Alex um, brought up in the Eraserhead podcast that we recorded, the episode. Um, he talked about Mary, Mary Douglas and matter out of place and how a bit, another big theme of, of this film is probably like transgression and people who refuse to, to, to stay in the categories that people would like them to. Yeah, I think um, that that idea of, uh, I, I remember listening to that, that episode as well and the idea of matter out of place and that you describing everyone she encounters trying to categorise her, it, it, for me it kind of, yeah, it, it feels like everyone she encounters is trying to make sense of her because she doesn't quite meet their expectations or doesn't quite fit in. And for me that kind of linked to the, the sense of the uncanny and you know, and when you were also talking about in um, that that subgenre, the you know the the dubbing and the words not quite matching the movement, like that idea of things being almost right but not quite, and she is a bit like that, like she's not quite she's not quite normal. When I'm doing that, and you know, like finger quotes, um, and that. So when I saw that the film had been called Creepers in American. I was a bit, and also that you know the artwork they used, they kind of hammed up the the horror side of it and made her look quite scary. And I was a bit offended, and I didn't really get it. But then um, 
I think maybe I just really like the original title. But yeah, there's something about creepiness that that I'm really interested in and how like the insects are trying to I I feel like the the kind of motif of insects is like probably most people find them creepy as as creatures and and like the kids at her boarding school find her creepy. Um and Joanna Lindbergh has written about um the film Carrie in terms of um viewing Carrie through a kind of autism lens and how she it is very creepy um so it just yeah it, that, they're the things that kind of made me think of yeah I think you're right that's a really interesting point about the creepy and the creepiness and being kind of uh, sort of outside of society a little bit but also within it I mean she's like Jennifer the character and Jennifer Connolly the actor very much a kind of quite a typical Argento heroine, you know, young and beautiful and um, just running around in a, a flowy dress everywhere, a white flowy dress um, uh, and running around in sort of strange grounds of grand places. So in a sense, she's kind of like quite typical in that way, but also, yeah, she is introduced as this kind of really unusual person. When we first, one of the f- first scenes we meet her is she's on a bus and um there's a, a bee buzzing around inside the bus and it's and it lands on her and is sort of walking on her hand and she's just sort of watching it walk and somebody next to her starts freaking out and going oh no actually maybe she's not in a bus she's in a car I can't remember anyway starts freaking out and saying uh oh a wasp a wasp a wasp get rid of it get rid of it and is trying to swat it away and she's sort of fighting back and saying no 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 leave it alone don't hurt it don't hurt it um and that's a kind of really it was a really interesting way of saying quite neatly saying this person is different to most people um and we come to learn that that's because she has this strange telepathic connection with insects and later on the insects are helping her find dead bodies and all sorts of curious things are going on with fireflies that are leading her through the through the dark through the night and all this kind of thing um but uh but at that moment you you, it does establish her as a character who is divergent in some ways and uh uh, and uh, but also seemingly quite content with that. That's the quite interesting thing about Jennifer as a character. She does get a lot of. She goes through a lot in this film, um, an awful lot by the end of it. Uh, but you know, she gets bullied at the boarding school, and she's 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 seen as different, and uh, she's got this curious problem with sleepwalking as well that gets into trouble. But she always seems quite happy within herself. She always seems like a quite a confident character within herself. And whenever she's challenged, she can stand up for herself. Uh, she does have a moment halfway through where she's, you know, quite quite horribly bullied by all the rest of the children in this in the boarding school, and she that upsets her quite a lot. Um, but she seems like quite a confident character ultimately, which is I think she needs to be in order to get through that kind of horror film situation, um, the, the investigation that she ends up going on. But I really like that about her. I really like that she was quite happy and content to be this kind of fairly strange insect loving uh, young woman um, who is fairly independent. And, you know, I, I really warmed to her at that moment where she was kind of holding the bee on her hand and was kind of stroking this the little furry back of this bee I thought oh this this is she's a she's a good heroine she's a nice someone that can really root for I think in this which is nice yeah the uh, following up on that point David I, I, she also doesn't feel fear and, and as the film progresses as she moves into increasingly dangerous situations um finally in the house with 
with Bruckner. Um, I think she's I think she's asked whether she feels whether she's afraid and she says she says no. And and there is that braveness to her, although she is sort of figured almost as, as a sacrifice in that white dress. She think, you know, I was thinking, oh, no, what's going to happen? You know, um, but she she comes through. She is she is the last girl. Her and the chimpanzee are the last girls um, uh, in the traditional horror genre. Um, but I wanted to I wanted to uh, raise a point about the script here and and the the way that the script uses a lot of kind of like quite hammy lines that a lot of the things that people say feel as though they're um, you know straight from a script writing book from the 1950s or something um, or from a jello novel perhaps um, and including the character of Jennifer and her delivery is quite often this sort of quite, you know, straightforward, almost mechanical delivery of a line as though she's in a bad rehearsal for something. And um, what this made me think about when I was watching it was masking actually. And I, and I was thinking about that, the way in which the, the kind of the B, B movie genre has this sense of a stilted script that makes you feel that the social interaction isn't quite right that there's something there's something uneasy uncomfortable about this and this seemed to me to be you know part of that 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 sensibility um of autism that we've talked about a lot in these podcasts that sense of like this the social world denaturalized if you like I, I wonder what other people thought thought about that um yeah I, I did make a note about the you know the acting style of Jallo, and 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 there does feel like a, a slight disconnect between what people are saying and what they're presenting and and how they're presenting it. And I wondered if that was um, perhaps you know I don't know reminiscent of an artistic experience or sensibility in that um, it it does it feels like everyone's acting the whole time. And, you know, Jennifer's dad is a famous actor. So there's sort of this tie to, to acting that's hinted at in the, quite strongly in the film. And, um, and, and obviously um, there's, there's like an issue about language as well, because Swiss, Switzerland's a place with three languages. And um, so I was watching... I was watching a version where it was primarily in English, but 20 minutes were cut out when it was released in America. So every so often it would slip back into either Italian or German for a few lines. And it was kind of disconcerting, but um, it kind of added to this sort of strange disconnect between um, what was being said and, and, and what was being um conveyed and uh, I wondered about Jennifer's ability to to communicate with insects and if that could be seen as some sort of uh, metaphor for some sort of alternative communication style and how it's not it's not really um, trusted or seen it's not seen as trustworthy and it's not seen as valid because it doesn't stick within these conventions of this this film so much of what you've just said is really fascinating, but I've got a question. I, is that why there, there were sort of 
portions of Italian and German in it that because they it was the extended version with the with the dubbing left. I, I assumed it was a kind of director's choice and it was about, I don't know, us not necessarily having access to everything that was said or or just reflecting that it is a multi-language country and you know being British, we we don't really that's not very common to us, but in that country in Switzerland they you know they jump. I I, I thought it was is it because of the dubbing? This has blown my mind. Um, that's what I assumed, but I mean, you may be right. But I, I have, I mean, it kind. Of, I quite liked it. I felt like it kind of added to my viewing experience. But um, yeah, I, I assumed it was just because twenty minutes were cut out, and so they had to, you know, they couldn't. But I'm not really sure. I mean, there, there is a the first victim of the the killer, uh, one of the first things she says is, I'm a foreigner. So there is this whole, you know, idea of this this sort of almost fairy tale land in which which we've stepped into and we're, we're foreigners too. So maybe uh, maybe it was an <laughs> intentional choice that we don't we don't understand everything like Jennifer doesn't understand everything. Just to add to that, the the first girl who's killed as the film opens, it's a Danish girl. So that would sort of support your point. So it's a land where there's all sorts of different people communicating in different ways, isn't it? And different languages. That's interesting. I watched the the, the, the totally Italian dubbed version. Um, so I didn't get any English at all. Although I could see, I could tell from the way that, from sort of doing a bit of lip reading that they were speaking in English and that it had been dubbed over in, in Italian because their lips were matching the the subtitles so they would so so there's a curious sort of like disconnect between the three things about what you could see what you can hear and what you can read on the screen which is really interesting if you sort of delve into it in a uh, it's sort of thinking about it in terms of communication film communication and the kind of different levels of communication that we are expected to go along with as we go through life and how that can be something that is markedly dif more difficult for autistic people who might struggle with, um, you know, who might miss, miss there, might, there might be sort of level with a uh, miscommunication with non-autistic people, which happens so often. And I thought it was really interesting. So yeah, there's something very interesting swirling around in all of that, which might have just come out through the wonkiness of this kind of a film, of this sort of B-movie kind of feel. Um, but I always get the sense that Argento really doesn't care about anything like that and just wants to throw as much stuff to this, on the screen as possible and make it as a, a overwhelming an experience. And that's one of the things that I noted down as one of the things that I found interesting about this film, but also about Suspiria, which I've watched um, not so long ago, was uh, the sort of sensory... Um, intensity of the experience of watching an Argento film. There's always a lot of color, a lot of light, um, a lot of, um, you know, very kind of dramatic backdrops. Um, and he, he sort of like, you know, in, in Suspiria, there, it's a very similar film in that there's a serial killer that's killing off people, uh, killing off young women who are attending a dance school and the dance school is very elaborate, uh, a very elaborate building. Um, uh, with lots of things like stained glass windows and lights coming in all over the place. And I just, I got the sense with this film as well about that sort of real intense, um, almost technical or sensory feel of the film. Um, and not only that, but there's also like, there's a moment where she's, um, 
Jennifer's gone outside in the night uh, looking for her friend who was who was her, her roommate. Um, and there's a glove, I think, that's been caught inside a, a, a bush. And there's a quite an extended shot where you see her hand going through this this bush in order to get hold of the the glove. So there's a real emphasis there on like the scratchiness of the leaves and the branches as she's reaching through. And when she comes back out, she's slightly itching her, her arm because I think she's been a bit scratched. And I, I just like, I really like that intense focus on the touch and the feel and the the sensory overwhelm almost of the of the film. And I felt that that maybe connected a little bit with the similar sort of um, sensory intensities that autistic uh, viewers and people might might experience. Um, so that was one of the things I thought was really rich about this about this film. Yeah, I had I had a couple of notes I'd made about about that actually. Um, the first was that for me personally, I often find that modern films especially I, I just can't watch them because the this sort of cuts are very quick there's a lot happening visually sonically like the, the dialogue's really quick and I just find them overwhelming but but I found so whilst there is a lot of you know kind of texture and intensity I, I found it really soothing and really easy to follow um it sort of matched my palette I guess yeah, and also one of the other things I thought about was um, similarly how um, it sort of reflected the sensory, often sensory uh, sensitivities or heightened sensory experiences that autistic people can have. Um, and the idea that autistic people can interact with their environment in sort of quite divergent or different ways. So it made me think of, um, I don't know if you know Mel Bags, uh, they're sort of quite well-known. Um, autistic advocate and their film in my language where they kind of in you know sensorially interact with these inanimate objects um and yeah there's sort of quite a lot of um autistic people i know who who have these kind of really profound sort of flow-based rich interactions with um aspects of the environment that may or may not be animate um that's driven by their sort of profound sensory relations and, and way of relating. Um, so it felt like that, yeah, that that was represented. And, and it made me think of a quote actually, which I've got by um, a, a researcher. Um, I can't remember her first name, but her surname is Fame. And she talks about um, autism as a thing that happens between sensing bodies and sensuous worlds in all the particularity of each, which seemed really kind of relevant here. Um, yeah, yeah. There's some clear depictions of, of sort of that would be very similar to to perhaps a, an experience of sensory overwhelm. You know, when after Jennifer sleepwalking, she's wandering through town and she's she's quite disorientated, and and the brightness is literally turned right up, and um, and you know, so that that's not perhaps a positive experience for us. She is quite distressed, but there are more. Um, examples like David mentioned the bee and you know most most people wouldn't derive any pleasure from a, a bee being on them they'd be quite scared and um, maybe not you Gemma you keep bees but um, but you know it really focused on the like soft furriness of, of a bee and um, yeah so so it does seem that Jennifer has a very distinct and um, 
individual connection to the world around her, which which others others don't really understand or they try to pathologize. And it's that I wonder if that sensory apprehension of the world can be linked to her te- telepathy that that it, it sort of moves in different ways in the film. It's part of the aesthetic and our experience of the world. And the film has a has a blue filter on a lot of the time, doesn't it? In the sort of dreamy sequences, it's actually quite beautiful the way that we're experiencing the world as as sort of almost glowing in this in, in this strange light I read one review of it where someone, someone described it as cold but I didn't find it cold I found it much more dreamlike um but yes I'm, I'm just sort of listening to 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 what you're saying and I really liked your quote Gemma about that autism as a thing that happens between I think sensory bodies and and a sensing world is that right a sensuous world I think yeah a sensuous world even better um yes and I'm, I'm and I'm thinking that her her knowledge her intuition seems to come from her, a very bodily experience of that world which then enables her to you know be interested in have her relationship with insects which then comes through and connects with a more sort of cognitive approach which you could say is you know the whole the whole the whole story of who did it and why um the sort of the rationale of of, of the film but we get there and through this this other route that you've just described i suppose one of the things we might possibly need to address um is the because this, this film's not perfect by any stretch and uh, there's a uh once we get towards the ending of the film uh, once we get sort of into the climax where it gets really horrible really quickly um once jennifer you know discovers who the serial killer is and ends up basically at their house and in their lair i suppose um and in this really horrible situation then also discovers a, a child who is um has a kind of uh, a facial disfigurement, I suppose, uh, and maybe that this child it's, itself is also, in some way, neurodivergent. We might suggest um, it's difficult talking about this because the, the child is effectively just de- demonic, and and is she encounters this child in in its room, and it's sort of sort of standing in the corner of the room, staring down and crying. And she's trying to goes over. She goes over and tries to comfort the child. Uh, he turns around and he's got this very horrible, um, dis- sort of disfigured face, which makes it makes the child almost look quite insect-like in a way. I thought, um, and then the child just start, proceeds to sort of chase her and try and attack her and and kill her, and she ends up on a kind of a boat, a kind of power boat, and um, this 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 child comes running out of the house and jumps on the boat and tries to attack her with a big pointy stick and tries to kill her and all this sort of stuff. And it's kind of horrible and it's really it was really distressing um to sort of watch that um you know it's in a it's in a very schlocky horror tradition but at the same to the same extent it was also this was a a, a, a representation of disfigurement and uh disability that was not particularly comforting or not particularly uh correct really to 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 watch and i wonder what you all made of this child and uh, and whether it was a disturbing or too disappointing or maybe it could have gone in a different direction I don't know what do you think yeah I, I noted that as well um, and it reminded me of, of a maybe similar kind of conversation I think you had in 
was it the episode about a razor head? There was a the baby. Um, and it, so, yeah, it's this kind of very common trope, isn't it, of disfigurement, you know, indicating um, evilness, um, which is a real problem. Um, something else I thought about it was, I mean, I so I had to kind of watch through my fingers the last bit of the film because it was I'm not used to that level of uh, kind of gore. And I got a little bit confused about who the actual killer was. Like, was it the mum? Was it the child? Was it like a tag team? But something about like this mother being completely unhinged and sort of rageful. And, and it seemed to be like partly to do with the fact that she was trying to protect this, this slightly demonic, disfigured child. And for me, it kind of, you know, you could read into that the kind of echoes of this idea of disability as a burden, you know, on parents and, you know, yeah. It was a bit of a disappointing ending because up, up to that point, I, I'd actually been really enjoying the film. I thought it was really great. Yeah, I, I, I do think the, the, the child, who I think is supposed to be the main sort of killer, um, I think I think his his mum is sort of helping him from what I understood or like cleaning up after him and stuff. Um, I, I do, yeah, it does kind of complicate the, the, I mean, quite a lot, the representation of disability in the film because, um, I mean, there's, there's other disabled characters. There's, there's the entomologist. Um, there's arguably Frau Bruckner, his mum. I mean, she, she was in, she was committed to a, to a psychiatric institution where she was sexually assaulted and that's how the child was born. So there was this, it wasn't very clear, but there was this discussion in the elevator about someone breaking into a, to a hospital, which I didn't quite get at first. And then I remembered. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's, it is kind of like quite a, a muddied, representation um i i was looking online doing some research i found this article it's called um disability and deviance dario argento's phenomena and the main maintenance of ableness as a critical framework by um dr jamie mcdaniel and he kind of he looks at um how he he considers so the entomologist the, the scottish doctor i can't remember his name right now um and and jennifer and patchwa which is the the child at the end um as sort of representative of three potential um representations of of disability so the entomologist is sort of like the benevolent sort of innocent knowledgeable disabled character patchwa obviously as we discussed he you know he's he's as quite often happens in in horror films, disfigurement equals deviance or evilness. And um, and then he sort of frames Jennifer as sort of this metaphorical disability. So it's not quite clear. Like they never really define if Jennifer has a disability. You know that the scientists, the doctors, they never they never decide on something. But there's quite a lot of talk of. Um, deviance in sort of a biblical sense even in a psychiatric hospital they talk about circles of hell and um so it, it could be read as you know just displaying these these 
these almost tropes of disability. But then um, something that was really interesting is that the idea that Jennifer doesn't consider herself disabled until people start to assign that label to her. Um, and she resists it. You know, she says she says it's not an illness. And she says that she says something along the lines of, if you need to know about it, ask me, which is, you know, I thought was very relevant to autistic experience. And, um, and but then she starts to internalise it. She thinks that something's wrong with her. They find a letter to her dad where she talks about another personality emerging and stuff um and it's only when she talks to the entomologist another disabled character that she kind of finds acceptance sort of neutral acceptance that she's just she's just got this sort of natural difference and he talks about how it's it's quite natural in insects to have these abilities i'm not sure if that's actually biologically true like in the real world i don't I'm not sure if bugs are telepathic, but um, so Jennifer starts to accept it and starts to see it, you know, as perhaps something she could use for her benefit. So this idea of sort of um, isolation and sort of forced treatment. So there's, you know, Frau Bruckner was um, confined to a menstrual a psychiatric institution and then her son was chained up and it, yeah, I kind of, thought maybe it was trying to say something about that, about what sort of more able-bodied people do towards disabled people and how that eventually leads them to internalise this idea that they're perhaps deviant or monstrous. Yes, and that the, the way in which the mirrors in the house are covered up, if we take that as a metaphor of how... Uh, disability is you know mirrored back as something quite horrifying um by the so-called neurotypical world that would fit that it's it's also a moment in the film where where the child turns around that reminded me of um another moment in a film like that which was from Nicholas Roeg's Don't Look Now from 1973 um where the the, the small figure in a in a red cloak that we've seen you know, we've caught glimpses of around around Venice throughout the film. Um, we suddenly realise is is not the child, um, it, it, and that's this is the father's mistake that he misrecognises the child that he's lost. This child's figure that that's an adult, and I, I wondered if there was something in in this um, in this film that was picking up on a question from those sorts of films from also from you know the omen where damien is a is an evil child is the question about children and and their you know innate goodness as well i wondered if that was somehow in this um you know in this in this figure of of this child who turns out to be so demonic um and so so not we what is you know socially acceptable about children that we sort of project onto them that they they are you know they are good beings with with nice motivation in the world. I thought maybe, maybe that was there too. I did find it horrifying, and I had to look up and problematic, and I had to go and look up Davide Marotta and find out who he was, and and look at the other films that he'd been in. And it seems that he he plays the figure of the demonic child in in quite a lot of of of, of, of the films in his career. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, I share I share those thoughts about the, the problems around disability in, in his representation. Maybe just another small comment on something that um, you know, John James, you said uh, that that article, that essay you'd read, with the three different types of disability representation with the um, entomologist who's you know potentially you know that role of the benevolent disabled person like he of the three characters we're talking about he's the only one whose disability was acquired later in life through accident um and you know which again maybe isn't the greatest realization because it's sort of like well you know especially with a child it's like where where disability is from birth you know it's like the difference between what's inherent and what's you know can be inherently if you're you know you're inherently good and then you accidentally become disabled and you can stay good but you know if you're born disabled you're probably really bad you know haven't said that very eloquently but you know it is something that's quite that I've been thinking about for for a while is this idea of sort of um I guess it's like it's a, it's a it's quite a clear horror trope. It's like a a creepy child. So, like Janet was saying, it's kind of it's kind of like subverting our expectations of what a child should be. Um, I mean, it, it's it's almost like it's so overdone now that when you see a child, you're like, oh, they're going to be creepy in a horror film. But I mean, like if you think even back to that. Um, turn of the screw adaptation the innocence that's really scary and you know the the children are just behaving in a way that we as a society I guess don't expect them to um I do I yeah it sort of ties into this sort of idea of um the change you know a changeling myth you know you you expect a child a, a you know a well-behaved nice child and then you you get something else and it might be a monster or it might be, you know, some, yeah. And it it's used so much. I was, um, so I was rewatching The, the Ring recently, the, the American remake, because I have a really soft spot for that because it came out when I was a teenager. And um, everyone talks about the creepy kid in it. Um, there was like a clickbait article that was like, you'll never guess what the creepy kid from The Ring is up to now because he's like, he's in the American Senate or something. He was a child actor. But um, so I thought, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll rewatch this. And he's n- when I started rewatching, I was like, well, he's not that creepy. He's he's clearly just neurodivergent. Like he doesn't, doesn't talk that much. He's a stickler for rules. He, he yeah. Um, so I get I guess it's just another representation of difference as sort of a bit scary or weird to most people. I had questions about the chimp. Um Inga, right? Her name is. Um so I wondered whether I mean, I'm not super familiar with the genre and films of that time, so I didn't know if it was like if that was a thing that you get, you get a chimp in these films. Um but two two things I kind of noted about about the chimp was one, the that she was kind of one of the most sympathetic characters and that the humans, you know, the, the children at the boarding school, the staff, the teachers, like the murderer, mo- most of the humans in this film were quite unlikable. Even the detective wasn't 
you know, wasn't that great. Um, you've got the disabled entomologist who's very likable. You've got Jennifer um, and then you've got the chimp. So I, I don't know whether there's something there about that kind of, I don't know, um, like that slightly off kilter way of interacting with the world where, where you're not accepted by you know the neurotypical world, the typical human, let's say, but um, I don't know, maybe it's like casting human, you know, people in a bit of a negative light, whereas you've got this real empathy and kindness in the chimp. Um, and also, yeah, it, you know, the fact that she's a chimp kind of stood out to me because chimps feature quite a lot in the autism literature, early autism literature, weirdly, because, you know, a lot of autism research was founded around the idea of autistic people not having theory of mind, the ability to, um, you know, perceive and understand the perspectives of others, whereas chimps can. So that got referenced quite a lot. And, you know, I just, yeah, I thought it was very interesting. Yeah, and I guess like we can almost think about the the child in this film as um, yeah, the, the the child that wasn't you know, the sort of monstrous child, I suppose, and how the the mother has reacted to this. And you you were mentioning this earlier, Gemma, and it's kind of like there there is a kind of there's a there's a big discussion around this in the in the kind of history of autism in a way because there's there's been so many parents down the years who have you know um reacted perhaps not correctly or reacted negatively to the discovery that their child is autistic and have then become fiercely sort of protective but also very angry about that situation and have ended up falling into the kind of anti-vaccine route and the the myths and the, the conspiracies around all of that um, they're referred to maybe quite disparagingly in the autism community as like warrior parents who are like you know really fighting for the, the these rights, but in the in this at the same time, not allowing their child to flourish, not allowing their child to be um, part of society, uh, wheeling them out, wheeling their child out as a kind of example of how things have gone wrong, and therefore you know, and so it's a really difficult and sticky and and, and quite horrible situation in many ways. And um, there's perhaps a reading of that in this that perhaps the actions of the mother who who is help is kind of protecting the child as he's on his kind of rampage, perhaps reflects upon that on that world a little bit. And maybe there is a criticism there of saying, maybe it could be read in that way of saying, you know, we need to accept difference um, and celebrate it and find ways of helping it. It's easy enough when your child is a uh, Jennifer Connelly and she's, she's, you know, perfect and beautiful, etc. cetera. Um, but maybe there is a, 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 a theme there of like, people are different and divergent and, if that is accepted and encouraged, then that's better for everyone. Um, and perhaps therefore that the, 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 the sort of dis disfigured child that she ends up discovering at the end is the sort of reverse of her in a way. Um, interesting. Um, I guess we're sort of winding towards an ending, but I did want to ask, why is there a chimpanzee in this film? <laughs> Anybody <Yes>. know why? <laughs> I mean, I quite enjoyed watching The Chimp, but why is it here? 
I guess I saw it as another another example of sort of transgression and people refusing to stay in the categories assigned to them. Um, but it did also mark the entomologist as slightly odd. Um, I think that the school teachers warned Jennifer to stay away from him. Um, so, yeah, it, but yeah, in, I, I did really feel sorry for Inga and she was probably one of my favourite characters. She's the hero in the end, isn't she, Inga, when she comes back in and starts with the knife and starts slicing that woman's face open. It's interesting. But we've talked a lot about on this podcast before about like um, animals is a theme that keeps coming up and like autistic kinship with animals in a way is, is something that keeps uh, reoccurring in, in our discussions. And of course, we have this here with uh, Jennifer and her um, telepathic connection with insects. Um, and I, I, one of the things I really appreciated about the film actually was its kind of use of extreme close-ups on insects you do you you, you know you got some real um macro almost shots of it of flies eyes and insect eyes there was a couple of moments where we actually get it from the point of view of the bugs from the uh, from the the sort of compound eyes of the flies and the bugs and so on you see jennifer and other characters in this kind of compound vision um and so there was not only was this the this, this idea of her having telepathic connection with with insects, we also feel it ourselves. I think as viewers, like we really get to be quite intimate with the with the flies and the bees and the bugs and the maggots uh, and and uh, the various things that we see. And of course, I suppose with, with the chimp. And it's interesting to to note the chimp as perhaps the most empathetic character in the film, or the, maybe the one we warm to the most more than any other. Um, it was always a kind of a bit of a joy to see the chimp on the screen, um, although I'm not, I'm not completely convinced that animals should be trained to be on screen. But anyway, that's a different discussion. Um, but there's the moment where the, the uh, John, the um, the entomologist, is, is you know under siege, is being attacked by the by the killer, and the the chimp has been locked out and he's trying to get back inside. And it was like really quite distressing watching this this chimp trying to sort of claw its way back inside the house. Uh, it was quite interesting. But yeah, as I say, we talked a bit about that. Yeah, the the kinship of autistic people with animals and whether there is a, 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 a sort of stronger or more profound connection there in some ways or an important connection. And it's interesting that the film ends on the, Jennifer and Inga the chimp kind of embracing uh, each other. Um, at one point, it even looks like the chimp gives her a bit of a, uh, gives her a kiss on the cheek, um, which was quite sweet. And um, yeah, so I, I thought that was a quite interesting, uh, interesting use, uh, I think, of, the, of animals. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think Inga puts in one of the best performances in the film. I think that she's she's pretty good. Um, I also want to get in. I think this film has one of the best lines I've ever heard, which is um, uh, when the when the professor introduces himself as an expert in cadaverous fauna. I thought that was so terrific. I'd quite like to borrow that at some point in the near future, um, or possibly even develop skills as as an expert in cadaverous fauna. Uh, but I, I also thought that the 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 insects, everything that's been said about classification and so forth, is has been fascinating i think it's also worth saying that it's this film subverts that horror of of insects that way that horror films usually use insects you know like like the fly dna gets mixed up with this oh my god how terrible um or swarms are often seen to be really you know malevolent um other 
other species. And in this film, they're here that, you know, they swarm, but they swarm to, in a protective way. They swarm on behalf of, of one of the human characters. Um, and I think that there is, um, you know, there's, there's a really interesting take on, on many different insects in, in this film. And it's, it, it's very, very unusual for that. Yeah, I, I really liked that. Oh, sorry, go on, Jenny. I was just going to say, is it interesting what you were saying earlier, David, about, about the point of view? Because that's, that's one of the things we haven't really talked about. The point of view shifts in this. And, you know, you, you, several times there were the, those overhead shots. And I was just thinking as you were speaking about how we see from the point of view of an insect, is that what they, those are, actually? Are we seeing from the point of view of a fly on the ceiling or something like that? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed those those different, you know, the different angles and the perspectives and through the, the, you know, the fly eyes or the ladybug eyes, I think, at one point. And I think we kind of, one of the, there was a there was an unusual shot, I think, sort of zigzagging around and that was maybe from the glow worm at one point. Um, yeah, I, I obviously loved it because I really like insects, but um, I agree. I think it, it may it makes the viewer very sympathetic to these creatures that are often very not understood and often seem quite alien you know, insects. Um, and, and what I was thinking about the, um, you know, David, you were you were talking about how autistic people often have these very intense and uh, rich relationships with animals of different kinds. Um, and I, so I I wonder whether actually it's that autistic people have a great capacity to um to engage like we you know we were saying earlier through you know sensory differences but you know the, a real richness in connecting with others in their environment and other agents in the in the environment and the fact that communication often breaks down between autistic and non-autistic people is perhaps more to do with the prejudices or the biases or the thin slice judgments that non-autistic people make, you know, that that's a very human, that, that that's a kind of breakdown of understanding on a very human level, but actually autistic people have this ability to achieve affinity with other beings um, and animals. And, um, and thinking about telepathy, I think, Telepathy is really just transmitting something from one mind into another, which is what communication is. And, you know, as humans, we use words, but um, there are many different ways of doing that. And like bees um, are really excellent. Like John James, I think you asked if bugs are telepathic. And I don't know if they'd necessarily be called that, but essentially they are like, you know, bees are because they communicate so much. They're a very, what seems like a very limited code, but they, you know, it, they use all, you know, they smell and, and, and visual and all, lots of different senses to communicate a lot and stay attuned in this sort of hive mind. So, yeah. And of course, Gemma, you mentioned earlier on theory of mind and how uh, the, the, the theory of mind theory, which is often one of those things that sort of think it, 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 there's a question about being like tele, telepathically being able to um, understand what another person is thinking, and and that's one of the sort of tenets, I guess, of of theory of mind is this idea that um, that we that well the the theory itself suggests that neurotypical people have this instinctual ability to be able to effectively read another person's mind to know what they are thinking within a given situation, and that autistic people have a deficit or a lack of this. Um, the 
that we don't believe that to be true. It, it, it's dependent upon circumstance. It's dependent upon context. It's dependent upon different levels of communication. But there is that connect, connection there about saying, you know, are we supposed to be telepathic with each other? Are we expected to be telepathic with each other? And um, there are so many different pathways of communication that human beings communicate in different ways through body language and through social context and through various other bits and pieces that the neurotypical wavelength of that and the autistic wavelength of that don't always uh, match up and don't always connect. Um, and But the problem has been that we've suggested that's because autistic people lack empathy for some reason. But I think that, yeah, it's interesting to sort of think about theory of mind, but take it away from that human element and talk about it in terms of insects or talk about it in terms of animals um, or even non-thinking objects um, and just the sort of communications that occur, the, the vast network and of communications that occur without all things across um, beyond uh, human beings. And I think maybe this film does reach towards that a little bit um, and allows us as viewers to, to, to feel that to a certain extent with the little uh, moments of seeing things from the point of view of, of the bugs. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> this film is much more about autism than I thought it was <laughs> uh, initially. Uh, great. Okay. Well, listen, I think we've been recording for quite a while now, so let's, um, let's wrap that up. Uh, so yeah, thank you. That was our discussion on Dario Argento's, uh, phenomena um thank you very much for for joining us so uh, thank you janet and thank you john james uh, but extra special thank you to Gemma. thanks for coming along and discussing this film thanks for enduring all the gory horror and uh, so on that we uh, sub have subjected you to um, and thanks for your input that was really really great really interesting um and you know best of luck with all your bees i hope they're all well and happy at the moment <laughs> Okay, great. So yeah, we'll wrap things up there. Thank you very much. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with uh, uh, another discussion about another film. But until then, goodbye. You have been listening to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, hosted by John James Laidlow, Alex Whittleson, Janet Harbord, and David Hartley. Extra special thanks to our special guests for this episode, the wonderful Dr. Gem Williams. Do check out Gemma's academic and musical works by clicking the links in our show description and following her on Twitter. Thanks also to Leverett Jakes for supporting us with their unfailingly excellent editing skills. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter, used under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. The Autism Through Cinema podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project, based at Queen Mary, University of London, and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema. If you'd like to contribute to the discussion of the films we talk about, or if you have any suggestions for future episodes, please email us at cinemaautism at gmail.com. That's cinemaautism with a shared A in the middle of the word. We'll be back again in two weeks' time with another slice of neurodivergent cinematics. Bye for now. Thank you.